Luke 16.10. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. And I greet you in the precious name of Jesus and welcome you here today. As we begin the sermon here together, I would like to read a quote, this quote by Jean Getz. And I'd like to see what you think of that, see if you agree with Mr. Getz. Here's the quote. One of the most exciting ways for every 20th century man to learn practical lessons for facing today's challenges successfully is to study Old Testament characters. And let me just say a couple of things. You notice that it said 20th century. Well, we're now in the 21st century. It also said a man. I would like to say a person because that includes you ladies just as much as any of the rest of us. And to learn practical lessons from Old Testament characters, that could be in private or it could be in public. I remember, and I'm thinking that you do too, that in the recent past, uh, various of our pastors have talked about Joseph and about Ruth and about Daniel in public. But you can study characters in private as well. So I hope that you concur with what Mr. Getz said. And let me just read that quote again. One of the most exciting ways for every 20th century man to learn practical lessons for facing today's challenges successfully is to study Old Testament characters. Maybe you've guessed after the passage that David read and after the last song that Virgil led that we sang together that we're planning to speak about Joshua today. And maybe you're glad if that's the case that you still have your Bible turned to Joshua 1. We'll hopefully be examining a, a several, a number of Old Testament texts today, but really none of them in Joshua. We'd like to talk today about Joshua the man before Joshua the book, the background of Joshua, the earlier life of Joshua, Joshua before the book of Joshua. And as we introduce that, as I introduce that, the, the title that I've chosen is Joshua and His Background. And I'd also like to introduce a series and, and mention that I hope the next number of times that I it's my turn to preach here, to be preaching about Joshua, various aspects of his life. And the name of the series, Joshua, Warrior and Worshipper. He lived about 3,500 years ago, 3,500 years ago. And the lessons that we can learn from his life and his experience, I submit, uh, live on to our day and even beyond our day. Turn with me to Exodus 17. Exodus 17, verse, and breaking in at verse 8, you'll see in verse 9, Joshua introduced there. This is the first mention of Joshua in the Bible. And 
It just mentions his name here. Interesting to me that there's no lineage given in this first mention of the man Joshua. Although we know from our Bible reading in Joshua 1 today that he was the son of Nun. And we also will know from a little bit of Bible study that he was of the tribe of Ephraim. But here the first mention doesn't give anything about his lineage. Gives no background, no description of his character. Uh, he is just kind of thrust on, into the scene here. And though that's the case, we do learn through, can learn a few things about Joshua in, what, in the command that Moses gives Joshua in verse 9. Moses said, Choose us out men, phrase 1, and go out, phrase 2, fight with Amalek, phrase 3. So there's three abilities apparent from that chain of commands that Moses gave Joshua when he said, choose us out men. Well, that, to me, I see that here that Joshua was a man of good judgment and go out. That leads me to believe that he was an able leader and fight Amalek. We understand from that that he had some military know-how, some military knowledge, apparently. And I asked the question, where would have he learned these things? And especially military knowledge, where did he learn that? You know, of course, that Joshua, like all of Israel, except Moses, basically, was born and lived as slaves, were born and lived as slaves in, the, in Egypt. And we don't know how old Joshua was here, but we, know he, we think we know he was over 20. I'm just guessing he could have been in his 30s or 40s. And he had no experience of any kind militarily, we don't suspect. But the fact that he was born a slave, like everyone, like the nation of Israel in general, <clears throat> His dad had been a slave. His mom was a slave. Maybe his grandparents too. And all the suffering and the affliction and the lack of privilege that goes along with being a slave. We can easily imagine how that could have been. As I think of Joshua and that he began as a slave, I think of people like, well, I think of a couple Washingtons. And I'm not thinking of George Washington, but I am thinking about George Washington Carver, and you know who else I'm thinking of, perhaps, Booker T. Washington. They were both born in the middle 1800s. They really never knew when they were born. There wasn't any records kept. They never knew when their birthdays was, but yeah, they were about the same age, born in the middle 1800s. And they rose from slavery to become prominent men of knowledge and wisdom. The wonderful thing about both of them is that I would kind of guess from what I know about these men, Booker T. Washington and George Washington Carver, is that there's a good chance that they're enjoying the pleasures of heaven even now as we speak. I believe that they were Christian men from what I understand. So I think of Joshua, born a slave. I think of Booker T. Washington and George Washington Carver. And then I think of myself, too, because really, in another sense, I 
and all of us here were born slaves, were we not? We were born slaves to sin, slaves to death. <clears throat> there was only no hope and without God in this world. But then Jesus makes all the difference. Jesus and his redemption, and we have been rescued from slavery in a much greater way than Booker T. or George Washington Carver were. How we thank God that we are no longer slaves, but we're slaves of God instead. And that is a wonderful privilege that is ours today. It's obvious that Moses trusted Joshua, isn't it? Look again at verse 9 there, Exodus 16, 9. And obviously good reasons for him trusting Joshua, I submit, though, that much more important and vital for Joshua than his abilities, which we had just mentioned, good judgment, able leader, militarily knowledgeable, that we gather from verse 9, there's something much more important about Joshua that shows up in verse 10. Do you see it there? So Joshua did as Moses had said to him. That phrase, I think, speaks volumes of his success under God and how he, that he was a faithful man in this of being a soldier. He was to fight Amalek physically down in the valley, even as Moses, Aaron, and Hur also fought spiritually up on the hilltop. And in the spiritual realm, I believe, is they obedience, obedience. More important than what he his abilities was his quality, his, the virtue of obeying his commander. In this case, Moses, and that brings us down again to us here today. All of us here, we have a commander. We are. In a sense, sold, certainly we are soldiers fighting spiritual battles. We are soldiers under our commander, the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us commands. Our job is to obey and submit just as faithfully as we can. So that's the first glance we have of the man Joshua here in Exodus 16. 17. 17, thank you. I must have said 16 pretty often there. Exodus 17, right you are. Let's turn then to Exodus 24. I think I have the right chapter there, Dan. Exodus 24. So, we, in Exodus 17, we've seen him as a soldier, faithful as a soldier. In Exodus 24, we see Joshua in another level, when in verse 13, it said, And Moses rose up, and his minister Joshua, and Moses went up into the mount of God. He was Joseph's, you know, he was Moses' minister. That doesn't mean pastor, like we often use the term, but it more means, gives the idea of assistant, or servant, attendant, aid, those kind of things. He was 
obviously close to Moses and someone that Moses could trust, not only on the battlefield, but also here in what was just about to transpire. And do you know from the context what was going to be happening here as Moses and Joshua went up to the mountain? Well, Moses was going to be there for 40 days and receive the law and the Ten Commandments and God was going to speak to him personally, face, maybe not face to face, but man to God, Moses and God. It was just those two. Turn with me now up on the mountaintop. Turn with me now to Exodus 32, reading at verse 15. And the next few verses. And Moses turned. This is now Moses and Joshua on their way down from the mount after those 40 days. And Moses turned and went down from the mount. And the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both their sides. On the one side and on the other were they written. And the tables were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God, graven upon the tables. And when Joshua... Yes, there's Joshua. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, this is a noise of war in the camp. And we'll break off there. Moses and Joshua had left the camp of Israel down in the lowlands and had headed for the mountaintop where Moses communed with God for 40 days. And now Moses is coming down and Joshua is with him again. So where was Joshua these 40 days? Obviously he wasn't up on top with Moses and God. That was just those two, I think the Bible makes clear. And obviously he wasn't down with the people. Apparently, Moses had dropped him off partway up the mountain, don't you think? Isn't that the conclusion that you come to? If that's the case... We know what Moses was doing up on the mountaintop. We kind of know what the, the people were doing down in the valley. What was Joshua doing? Where was he and what was he doing? That's two of the five W questions, Brendan, isn't it? Where was Joshua? What was he doing? And we could ask, why was he there at that halfway place? Apparently, he got dropped off partway up through. And apparently there he stayed for 40 days. And Moses was up in, in the glory. And the people were down in the lowlands. And Joshua was halfway between them. Kind of, kind of floating with nothing to do and all day to do it. Can you imagine? Well, how would one survive? Apparently he had taken his backpack along with supplies food supplies and matches and so on. What was he doing? Well, the, maybe that's not the right question as much as the fact that when Moses came back down 40 days later, I can just kind of see him in my mind's eye wending his way through, through the trees and the forest. If it, if really, it was a mountain anyway. And he was thinking, I dropped Joshua off here somewhere. He must be somewhere. Where is he? Oh, here. Yep, there he is. 
And here was Joshua, the epitome of faithfulness, the epitome of patience, the epitome of dependability. When Moses came back down, there Joshua was, just patiently, faithfully, waiting, dependable man that he was. Do you, have you felt like Joshua sometimes, of kind of being in a halfway place, kind of being on hold? I have experienced that, and I think that you have too. There are times in life when it just seems like nothing much is happening. Probably God didn't forget me, but then again, um, what does he have in mind? I think there's more to life. I think there's more to the Christian life than this. It seems like God isn't leading and directing like I thought that he would. I'm just up here in the middle. Other people are down there. Moses is up there. And I'm just here being kind of useless. Maybe you have felt that kind of experience like Moses did. Moses, the picture of patience and faith and dependability. What about you? What about me? I remember a long time ago that Phil Byler said, when you get into a situation like that and you're just not sure what God has for you or where God is leading you, maybe you feel like you're a marriageable age and you'd like to get married, but the other gender doesn't seem to be responding like they should, perhaps. Maybe you're thinking, I'd like to serve in VS, but nobody's calling, nobody's asking. I wouldn't mind being a Sunday school teacher, but I'm not going to ask the superintendent if I may. I would like if someone would ask. You know, those kind of things. Well, Phil Byler said, when you are in that situation, when you're just not sure where, what the Lord has for you, where he's leading, you serve in, every, in any way that you can. Be, serve others. Serve people in the church. Serve your family. Serve your neighbors. Especially at times of life when you're not sure what God has, what you should be doing, the right answer is always to serve. And while you're serving, I would add, it's also great to be developing a servant heart, to be a servant in the true sense of the word. You know, it is possible to serve without being a servant, without having a servant heart, but while we serve, let's have a servant heart. How do you know when you have developed a servant heart? Well, someone has said, you can sometimes tell how much of a servant heart you have by your response when you are treated like a servant. And as I think of that, I think of the words of Ruth Harms Calkin, who wrote in verse, You know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how eagerly I speak for you at a woman's club. You know how I ever ask when I promote a fellowship group. You know my genuine enthusiasm at a Bible study. But how would I react, I wonder, if you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the calloused feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew.
Well, that was Joshua up there on the mountain, halfway up, partway up, all by himself, 40 days, not knowing what was going, really understanding the plan of God, but there he was, patiently, faithfully, dependable, in a dependable manner. Moving on to Numbers 11. Numbers 11, and I'm thinking about verses 25 and following. And when you get there, you might see the context. Moses here had gotten pretty frustrated with the chore of trying to lead this people, Israel with all their complaining and their weeping. And it was just too heavy for him. Verse 14, he makes that clear to God. So God says, okay, I'm going to appoint, I think, 70 elders. Yes, 70. You pick out 70 good men, and I'm going to put my spirit on them, and they're supposed to go into the tabernacle, and they'll prophesy. And that's all a little bit strange to us how that might have been. But that was the, what God said, all perfect and right and good. Verse 25, And the Lord came down in a cloud and spake unto him and took of the spirit that was upon him, upon Moses, and gave it unto the seventy elders. And it came to pass that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. Notice the next word. But there remained two of the men in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them. The Spirit rested upon them. And they were of them that were written but went not out unto the tabernacle and they prophesied in the camp. Breaking off there. You get it? The idea was that these 70 were to prophesy at the tabernacle but Eldad and Medad, little eccentric as they were, decided that they're going to do their prophesying in the camp instead of at the tabernacle. There was some concern about that. Verse 27, And there ran a young man and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad do prophesy in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men answered and said, My Lord Moses, forbid them. He was surely zealous for Moses and concerned about the program of God, wasn't he? And Moses said unto him, Enviest thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. That's a searching question that Moses asked in verse 29. Enviest thou for my sake? was the question given to Joshua, envious thou for my sake. Now, we had just noticed how that Joshua had proven himself faithful as a soldier in Exodus 17. And he had proven himself faithful also in that, uh, the, in Exodus 24 as a servant, the minister there. Now, we look at Moses and see that he, no, we look at Joshua and see that he was kind of mm, 
spiteful might be a good word. He thought that it was pretty important to correct these two men. And again, at first glance, it could have been zeal and concern for God. And I think that was there. I would just guess that that was part of it. But the fact that Moses asked that question in that way... Envious thou for my sake, that, word, that first word in the question, envious, leads me to believe that Joshua might have been just a little bit spiteful in his response, his reaction here. Do you, do you see that too? Apparently there was a little bit of envy involved. Um, he would have thought that they are being disobedient and that, that should be fixed, that should be taken care of, they should be reprimanded. I think there must have been just a little bit of envy because of what Moses asks him in response. Envy. Envy is that way, you know, that generally I become envious and maybe you do too, especially two times that God's children have a, are tempted to become envious. And I suggest that the first way is when it's in relation to peers, to those that are near in status to us, to those who are uh, similarly called and gifted. You know, I appreciate George Washington, but I don't think I've ever been envious of him. I like... Robert Frost, the poet, but I don't think I've ever struggled with envy or with Pat Toomey or Richard Satrielli, MD, or other people like that because they're way beyond me in status. But I might become jealous of my brother in the church or my brother in my family. That's where the temptation to envy often comes from. In relation to peers, those near in status, in family, in friends, in neighbors, and contemporaries. And I th kind of think I see that just a little bit in, Mos in Joshua's response there. Here was Eldad and Medad kind of near in status with Joshua. The second time that, en the second place or time where envy often rears its ugly head is when distinction and privilege and eminence is threatened. Let me just give you an example. So a couple of years ago, my brother Nathan Co Nate Kaufman had uh, taught at Winter Bible School, and maybe you remember that he taught on the book of Revelation, and he did a good job. He did a good job, and if I would have struggled just a little bit with envy there, it, you could have understood that, maybe? Not me. Okay, I'm not trying to excuse myself, but he's my brother. Not only my brother, but he's my little brother. And in relation to peers, those close to us. And secondly, when distinction and privilege is threatened. And, you know, I never knew that Nate even knew much about the book of Revelation. That was kind of my specialty over the years. I've appreciated prophecy and the book of Revelation, studied in it quite a bit, might have even known more about it than he did, but he 
was the one getting the honor of that. You see, um, distinction and privilege was being a little bit um, threatened. That, that's where envy will often catch us. Number one, in relation to peers, those that are close to us in contemporaries, in status, in our families. Number two, when distinction and privilege is threatened. I think I see both of that in Joshua, couched in concern for the Lord and zeal, when it might have been just as much or more envy that was the issue. And it seems like Moses puts his finger on that real effectively and says, envious thou for my sake. I think that Joshua got the lesson. I appreciate that Joshua didn't say, why don't we go kill him? He didn't say anything along those lines. Uh, he submitted to the will of Moses correctly there. Let's be turning to Numbers 14 now, just a few chapters further on in the book of Numbers. We've thought and noticed about the background of Joshua as he was a soldier, as in his role as a servant, and also in that of his being a little bit spiteful. Let's look at him now as Joshua the spy. Like you know, Moses sent out 12 spies. Ten were bad, two were good. Joshua was one of those faithful ones. And so for 40 days, I believe it was, they traversed the land of Canaan, a land that flows with milk and honey like God had said, and they were able to see that, yes, it does. It's a good land. I think 13, uh, chapter 13 talks about that. But 10 of them said, we can't do it. We're not able. Lack of faith, lack of faithfulness. God had promised the land. God had said, it's going to be yours. And they said, can't trust God. We're not able. Hardly matters what he said because... What we see leads us to believe that we can't. And we trust what we can see more than we trust God. But that certainly was not Joshua. So for 40 days, he braved the rigors of a fact-finding expedition in enemy territory. But his courage was only really tested when he got back to camp. To his own people and had to contend with Ten people who said, we can't, and who led all the people basically to say, we simply can't. Here's what Joshua and Caleb said. 14.7, Numbers 14, breaking in in the middle of verse 7. The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land which floweth with milk and honey. 
Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. Were you thinking about that as you were following along, that God really could be telling us the very same thing today in our, in our fight of faith as we battle toward whom? As we battle toward the heavenly Canaan. God has given us all things. New Testament language is that God hath given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. I think I'm ready to close before too long. Before, and just, we've looked at Joshua in these four ways and how he proved himself faithful as a soldier, as a servant, in, even in spite of spitefulness, and as a spy. Do you notice, just a couple points and these points might take a few minutes, or a number of minutes. Just a few points, how that... First, I'd like to ask you, did you notice how that Joshua was always orbiting around Moses? Moses, the leader. Moses, the commander. And where Moses was, that's where Joshua was. It seems... Interesting to me that the Bible doesn't indicate that Moses' sons uh, were that awfully impressed with their dad so that they were always around and watching how he did it and learning from him. Doesn't seem that way, but Joshua was. It doesn't seem like many of the nation of Israel, even for as they traveled through the wilderness on their way to Canaan, and then as they circled and wandered for 40 years, doesn't seem... Like many people were wanting or interested in learning from the master, Moses, of which God says there's not a greater prophet than Moses, and of which it's said that Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. It would seem like there would have been a lot of Israelites who would have been following Moses, watching Moses, orbiting around Moses, learning from Moses in that most godly and needed quality, <coughs> especially of humility, back there in those Old Testament days. Doesn't seem like there was a great following, but, Mo but Joshua was. Where Moses was, there Joshua was. Moses was Joshua's mentor. That's what the term that we use today and I challenge you young men and you young ladies that are here today how that under God you would do so well to follow the Moses in your life. You have some. They could be female Moses or male Moses. Could be your dad or your granddad or, or others. You would do well to be mentored by them whether they know 
that you're watching them or whether they don't. I remember a time uh, back in 1975, and as I say this, this is one time in my life where God was able to break through and as I look back at that you know, scene 40 some years ago I thank God that he was able to do that through me um, to break through and that I chose the right choice there. Now I don't think you're interested in a, long, a lengthy list of as a te- how as a teenager I made the wrong choices. Let's not talk about that today but just one time that I made the right choice. So I was 18, I had just graduated from high school, and I was working with my grandpa, my grandfather, Chris Byler. I realized that many, many of you never had the privilege of knowing him. And so we um, worked at the same job, and we got along fine together, and we enjoyed each other's company. I did, anyway, and I kind of think that maybe he did. One evening in the summer, uh, we had a family get-together. It was all of his children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Big, big reunion-type evening down at House Grove. And I think we were roasting hot dogs. There was a campfire there. And at one point, although there was many people there, they were mostly over by the tables and my grandpa and I were the only ones at the campfire. And I need to tell you that I was very tempted because of peer pressure. You know, there, at any time now, there could be a, some of my cousins coming to the fire and seeing this. I was severely tempted to um, not be nice to my grandpa and not even talk to him or just kind of be aloof and give him the message that, you know, working together is fine, but I don't really, I'm not really wanting to be your friend or anything because I want to be friends with my cousins and I'm not interested in letting them see that, that I have a good relationship with you because what might they think? I mean, he was 70 or, some, or so and I was 18. But I'm thankful that that temptation, uh, I was able, by the Spirit of God, I believe, able to uh, resist that temptation. And for some reason, I remember that yet. We had a good conversation by the fire, and our relationship blossomed. Uh, and for years, I loved my grandpa and appreciated him and looked up to him. He was one of my mentors as a young man. Uh, 26 years after that incident at the campfire, I had the privilege of, of having a part in his funeral here. All of that just to say that that was Moses and Joshua. All of that just to say that, is that you and a mentor that God is putting in, or mentors that God is putting into your path for your good, for your benefit, as, as you gravitate and orbit around mighty men and women of God that God has placed in your midst, you will be the beneficiary and God will be honored. Secondly, at some point, according to Deuteronomy 32.44, 
Okay, let me start again. At some point, I think it's talked about in Numbers 13, 16 maybe. At some point, Moses changed Joshua's name. Did you know that his original name had been Hoshea? Deuteronomy 32.44. You can check all these references and check me to see if I'm correct. Hoshea. Or it was sometimes called Oshia. Numbers 13.8, Numbers 13.16. And Moses changed his name from Oshia to Joshua. He was one of just a few good men who had their names changed. You know, remember that it was Abraham was another one? I should have looked at what, did, what does Abram mean and what does Abraham mean? But Abram meant something and Abraham meant something a little bit more special yet. Um, Barnabas in New Testament days, his name was Levi, but his name was changed to Barnabas, son of consolation, because he was such an encourager. So, why did Moses change Joshua's name from Hoshea to Joshua? Hoshea means salvation. Hoshea means salvation. Joshua means the Lord is salvation. You get it, don't you? Whenever... His name was Hoshea, and someone said his name, they were basically saying, salvation, you are salvation, you provide salvation. No, 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 no. It's the Lord that gives salvation to his people. I think that is a tremendous um, memorial of the life of Joseph, uh, the life of Joshua, that though he originally, his name was salvation, that Moses changed it to the Lord is salvation. Don't look at me, look at Jesus. Look at God. The Lord is salvation. It's not me, it's him. And thirdly, uh, just an observation here. Joshua was faithful as a soldier, as a servant, even in his spitefulness, he was faithful as a spy. What about you? What about me? Um, are you faithful? Am I faithful? As a husband, as a housekeeper, in your family, on your farm? Are you faithful whether you're wealthy or you're weak? Whether you're an employee or an employer? Whether you're a student or a statesman? Whether you're a mother or just a minor, whether you're a seamstress or a server, whether you're a builder or a burden bearer, are you faithful in whatever station the Lord has for you now? You remember, of course, that some t um, at different parts of his life, Joshua, well, he was sometimes a soldier, sometimes a servant, sometimes a spy. Later on, he became a successor to Moses. Different stations, different times, different situations in life. Are you like Joshua? My God is salvation, you know. Or are you a little bit less than faithful to what he has called you to be?
He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. Will you kneel with me for prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we bow here in your presence and we do so with gratitude and praise. And I pray also that that for me and for all of us here that we could be bowing in humility before you. We recognize that it's the Lord is salvation. It's the Lord that works in our life. It's the Lord that saves. It's the Lord, God of heaven and earth, who is our master and Lord. Our desire is that under all of that, Lord, that we would be faithful to what you have called us to. Sometimes our situations seem like the Booker T. Washington and the George Washington Carver situations where um, our past is littered with failure and it seems like we've uh, been born into a family that is dysfunctional or that is not recognized in the community. All kinds of things like that. We often look around and say, I'm not blessed like he is. Sometimes we're even tempted to envy others, especially those a lot like us, especially at times when our uh, standing in the community and in the church is threatened a little bit. Lord, I just pray that we could be faithful before you in whatever you've called us to, recognizing that the Lord is, is salvation, the Lord can carry us through, the Lord is faithful in all things, you have given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Thank you that you've saved us. Thank you that you've called us to a holy calling. Thank you that you're leading us on in the battles of life and that you will bring us in due time into your own heavenly kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.